Welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That's L-Y-T-E dot forward slash partnerships. Today, the spotlight is on Andrea Dre, Super Dre Wallace. As her name suggests, there are many Dre's including musician, coder, entrepreneur, and executive. Dre is currently CEO of Opener, a service that connects musicians with local performance opportunities and local concert organizers with great musicians and their local fan base. Dre has a great story, as does her company. I hope you enjoy learning about both. So where am I talking to you from? Where are you located? Today, I am in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Grand Rapids, We're, Michigan. It's like right there. All <laughs> Michigan people do that. <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. And it's the easiest way to tell people where you live. What's the significance of Grand Rapids in your life? Um, so I came here actually for undergrad. Yeah, so I actually didn't have like any family here really at all, but I came here for undergrad and my brother ended up moving here. Um, he married a girl from here and stuff. So I have like at least that family that's here. But I came here. Um, it's largely where a lot of like my like my musician career stuff like actually started. So it's kind of like where I spent most of my like young adult life. And then um, I was here for probably about six, seven years. And then I was like, I'm moving to L.A. So I moved to L.A. for a couple of years and then from L.A. to Detroit and then from Detroit back to Grand Rapids, actually. So I've like I did the U.S. tour. <laughs> so as somebody who's been to a lot of places, seen a lot of places, I've not been to Grand Rapids. What do I need to know? So Grand Rapids is a it's an interesting place. <laughs> um, most people have only heard of it for a handful of reasons, probably either because um, this is where Betsy DeVos is from. It's also where Gerald R. Ford is from, one of the previous presidents. I don't remember which number, uh, but he's from here. There's a museum and everything. Um, huge on office furniture. It's like the office furniture capital. So like steel case and Herman Miller, all that like expensive office furniture that people love. All of those headquarters are here. Hmm. Um, I would say that's probably like the biggest things that like it's kind of known for. Uh, and then outside of that, uh, huge for healthcare. Like healthcare is like a huge industry here. Okay. Uh, I might yeah. pass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's fun if you hang with me, but uh, it, yeah, it, it, it definitely is. That's what I said. It's like an interesting place. I always tell people I kind of have like a, like a bit of a love-hate relationship with it because the cool part about it is that there's so much that um, is kind of like a clean slate here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for folks like me, you know, and a lot of my other friends, you know, who have like businesses and who are really involved like in the community and stuff, there's like, we're really like shaping what Grand Rapids will be like. Like, it's like, this is kind of the time like where we can have our hand in that. And like, it's a good sized city, you know, like we're the second largest city in Michigan, just behind Detroit. 
Um, so we're and we're kind of sandwiched like in between, you know, Detroit and Chicago. So it's like we get these like musically, there's a lot of really interesting like influences. Um, and then also uh, we have a lot of music schools here, like kind of up north in the middle of nowhere. So Interlochen is here, which a lot of people um, send their kids uh, here for like music camps and stuff like that. So it's like a, it's an interesting place, um, but it's an interesting place that you can do a lot in if you play it right. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned um, it's an important place to you because of your friends in the music scene. And it's interesting that it's, I didn't realize geographically it's sort of between Detroit techno and Chicago house. So what's the music scene there? What, what was it? What's the history? Like, you know, can you give me that vibe at all? I can, I can. So um, it kind of, I guess you probably have to almost split it by genre too, but uh, you know, in the, and I wasn't really here cause I was still in school, but like in the nineties, from what I understand, <laughs> um, in the nineties, uh, there were quite a few bands actually that came out of here. Like this were like the Verd Pipe is from and like Pop Evil and like some of those bands. Um, there's also been a fair amount of hip hop that's been exported out of here too. So like acts like um, La the Darkman, who is part of Wu-Tang Clan and Willie the Kid. So some acts like that. Um, country music is huge here too. Lots of folk, lots of folk music, um, lots of folk music festivals here as well. Um, but yeah, like historically, I definitely can speak kind of on like, you know, from, because you mentioned house and techno, uh, you know, from the electronic music perspective, I do think it probably is kind of a perfect blend between, you can tell we're stuck in between those two cities, because um, you definitely hear a lot of influence from like Chicago style house, lots of big room house, like uh, producers here. Um, but you definitely hear, you, like, we definitely, you can tell we're a little closer to Detroit, though. <laughs> so we definitely, uh, you know, fall into the Detroit techno scene quite a bit. Um, there's just a lot of synergy there that I feel like probably in the last, I'd say like 10 years has gotten a lot better. Um, there's some advantages to being in between those two cities, but also some downsides because you kind of just get skipped over. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, when I was, you know, like playing out a lot, you know, like in like mid 2000s, like, you know, I, um, I felt like I almost had to go to Detroit. Like I, I felt like I had to move. I had gotten to a point where like I was touring a lot and everything. So like, I felt like I had to not be here. Mm. Um, whereas like now, you know, if at that point, if, if the city was where it is now back then, like I easily would have stayed. Like, and it actually probably would have been better cause I could have probably built more, you know, infrastructure around stuff here. But um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's kind of an interesting place to be, you know, like we don't really get, we don't get the same respect, you know, that Detroit gets, which like we shouldn't because Detroit is, Detroit's Detroit. Like it's, it's, it's great. And from a musical perspective, there's everything that you could possibly ever, ever want. I mean, from lots of different scenes there. Um, so I think in general, we've just always kind of been in this shadow, <laughs> you know, sort of in between the two cities. So take me back. Um, for your music career where did where did music start for you and I don't even necessarily mean as a performer or a creator mm-hmm. like you know what was what was your introduction to music and what was the first music that was sort of your own as opposed to something you know your parents or a sibling yeah. or somebody else was laying on you 
Um, so my first introduction to music was young, like probably like three, four. My mom um, is a really good classical pianist. Oh, wow. So she, yeah, she's really good. Like it's actually kind of annoying how good she is. Because <laughs> I can play too, but like I never, that was never my main instrument. So listening to her play, she'll be like, oh, I'm so rusty. I haven't played in so long. And it's just like, <laughs> like whatever, mom. But um, so she taught my brother and I when we were young. Uh, so like, I just, I don't know, it was just always something that was kind of around. Um, my dad is not very musically inclined, bless his heart. We love him dearly. <laughs> that was not a gift. <laughs> that is not a gift that was bestowed upon him. Music is truly a foreign language to him. He's even said that himself. Uh, but yeah, my mom taught us when we were young. And then after that, like I knew I knew I wanted to be in band. I knew I wanted to play an instrument. I didn't know what it was going to end up like, but I knew that was what I was going to do for sure. <laughs> yeah. And um, when you say your mom was a classical pianist, like, was that her career? No, it wasn't her career. It wasn't her career, but she played her whole life. I mean, from, I think she started taking lessons at like five or something like that. Wow. So, Did she go yeah, to conservatory? Was she like formally trained? She didn't go to conservatory or anything like that, but she did play in college. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And so yeah. were you one of those kids that it was like you were going to play piano, whether you wanted to or not? No, actually, no, not really. Like I had a lot of friends like that. <laughs> they were like forced to go to piano lessons. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny. Like piano was never really like pushed on me. My grandma had one at her house. So I used to love going to my grandma's house because she had like a full like upright piano and I used to love like playing over there and a lot of it really like looking back we were just it was like kids you know just messing around but we would make up our own songs and stuff with and we would sing you know me and my brother and my cousin in the basement like we're making our own band and stuff like that um but yeah it, it wasn't really it wasn't really anything that I feel like they needed to you know suggest to me like I really wanted to do it like yeah. I, I really wanted to do it and so you said uh, earlier that piano was not really your instrument. Um, what was like? How did you? How did music? How, how did music manifest itself creatively through you? Yeah. So I actually, when it was time for band, which I was like waiting, counting down, like <laughs> years, like because they would at my school they don't let you start until third grade. So um, I was just like waiting. I'm like, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to play the flute really bad. It was funny because I, I, I died to play the flute. I thought that this was going to be my thing. Um, so parents, you know, we, we go, we get a flute and I start band. Two weeks later, I'm like, this sucks. I hate it. <laughs> and I ended up, um, so they had me do like an instrument fitting. Um, and so like I tried like all these mouthpieces for instruments, you know, to see which ones like you might be the best at and wow. saxophone was clearly it like it was so clearly it that like you couldn't even it like it was obvious that that's what I was supposed to be playing. Um, so yeah, so I started playing the saxophone and that was my main instrument all the way through elementary, junior high, high school, college. So wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So I mean, to stick with it that long, you were pretty serious. 
Yeah, I loved it. I took private lessons. I did all the festivals. I went to like, I went to band camp. <laughs> I did all that stuff. Um, yeah, I really, <laughs> I really loved it. I really. That's a did. special kind of nerd. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in Michigan is cool when you go to band camp. Like, right, so there's right. like, because there's a couple here, like, because there's interlocking, and then there's like the blue, blue lake. Um, the Blue Lake camp up north and both are very popular. So it's kind of, it's kind of like, it's like, it's just a little nerdy, but it's also kind of a cool thing to do. So <laughs> at least a, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> as a saxophone player, what other instruments can you pick up and play? Can you play flute? Can you play uh, yeah. oboe or what, what, what? So oboe, so I studied in college, so they kind of make you be proficient on pretty much every instrument, just in case if you teach one day. Um, so like, I, I would say the closest, like flute is probably the closest, um, which is ironic that I didn't like it very much, but from a, like, from a tone perspective, like it makes a lot of sense. Clarinet, um, Clarinet. same thing. Like, so pretty much any reed instrument, although it's a little funny cause it's a double reed instrument. And so like your mouth just has to be a little bit different. I never really got super into that one. Like I could do it if I tried to pick up one now, I don't know, it would sound pretty bad. <laughs> the thing that helped me understand something um I've, i get the i get the reed instrument connection but why is flute why are flute and saxophone associated or why why is someone able to pick up a flute if they play saxophone what, what's the similarity there i don't know I, mean, I don't know if it's for like that for everyone but i almost wonder if it's like like your mouth the ligature like what the like the muscles that you need also, like the fingering is very similar. Like, so like, it's literally like flutes like this, saxophones like this, but the fingering is almost identical. So I think like, it's probably just pretty easy because I felt like that was an easier transition than when I've seen people go from like clarinet to sax, which is really close, but like clarinet is just different because you got the holes and stuff, which is more than like the keys for saxophones. So it's just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Do you pick up the saxophone and play any longer? I do sometimes, like not as much as I, I wish I did. I was actually just talking to one of my friends about this because I'm like, we should like jam in the garage one of these days. But yeah, every now and then, like when I'm in my basement and I'm like, you know what, like I'm just gonna just make sure I still got it. <laughs> you still got it? So, I, I still kind of have it. Like not as, I would not say as good, definitely not as good as I used to be. Cause what happens, the first thing that goes is the, it's the muscle tone right. here. So like for reed instruments, you know, the, cause reeds have a number, like and the number corresponds to the strength of the reed and like the thickness. So like, usually the longer you've been playing, the better you are, the more your muscles are toned, the higher number reed you play. So like, I think when I, you know, I was probably on like fives or something like that. Like, you know, when I was playing all the time, like every single day, like now, like I was going through my, my like read box or whatever. I was like, you should think I probably need to go to like a three or two. <laughs> Cause you do, you just, it's just like any other muscle. Like you start to lose the tone here. Like if you don't do it, use it all the time. So. And when you, when you pick up the saxophone and play, what are you doing? Are you running scales? Are you playing classical repertoire? Like what, what's, what's your thing? Yeah, I really, I really love classical music. Um, like a lot. I really do. And I, but I used to, I played a fair amount of jazz too. Um, in school, like I was in, I was in all of the bands, uh, concert band, jazz band, marching band, symphony, everything. And I played violin and symphony. 
but um i yeah i love music (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah it's i think for me probably my favorite honestly i would say to play probably was classical Mm -hmm. yeah for saxophonists who who were your people who were your who were your sax players a little bit of everyone. So like different people for different reasons. I will even, I know it's controversial, but even Kenny G, I would say for me as a kid was one of my like, I just thought it was cool that it was like pop music, but it was sax. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I felt like, because I, I knew, I knew I didn't really want to play, um, I knew I didn't want to really play like classical music like out, you know, like on the sax. But I was like, oh, this guy does some other cool stuff. Like that's kind of neat, you know. But I really liked him when I was a kid. Um, Love Coltrane, obviously. Like um, really liked. Um, there was a, a a woman saxophone player when I was like in junior high. I remember she was pretty famous. She would be on like all the talk shows and stuff. I think her name was Candy. I just remember she had long blonde hair. <laughs> but she was pretty popular and I thought that was just awesome because it was a woman you know um I think who else like Boney James um and then even honestly outside of that just I I, I didn't really always just focus on listening to other saxophone players yeah um, I just, I really just loved like everything. Like I used to like to listen to stuff like, like Inya, but then like play it like on my saxophone, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I was doing all kinds of stuff, like <laughs> probably so, annoying my parents in the garage. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this, and if you, and if you don't know, it's totally fine, but I, I'm curious, you know, there are certain instruments that I guess basically not band instruments where there are recognizable personalities so you know in piano there's not only jazz people but you have you know the great classical pianist Horowitz what have Mm -hmm. you there's guitar players across genre in the orchestral instruments or the band instruments like are there luminaries like are there saxophone luminaries outside of jazz that um that musicians know about that is a good question outside of jazz um and you can't say like Clarence yeah. clemens <laughs> so <laughs> so so i guess you know what i would say it's scene specific um oh, okay. because like so i i think of like you know some of my friends like out in colorado like big gigantic um like touring band they've been touring for a long time saxophone player you know in the band and they're huge because they're more like jam band style plus like a little bit of electronic definitely a lot of hip-hop influences they're really popular grizz um i don't know if you have heard of him but he's from uh he's from detroit friend of mine um plays sax like makes electronic music plays the sax live over like a lot of tracks um, you know, for hip hop, same thing. Uh, we've seen it with Masego. He plays sax, you know? So I think there, there are definitely spots for it. I've seen it used probably more, I would say in the last like 10 years, incorporated, incorporated into just many different genres, which I think is so cool. And I kind of think is indicative of like, probably my generation of like millennials, a lot of us played sax, like in school, like that, that time period. Um, and now you're seeing like, you know, we're incorporating it into other genres and stuff. So I don't know that it's like, like luminaries to the point of, you know, like a Coltrane, 
like someone who's just so, you know, just so massive, but they're there. They're just like in different pockets. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So thank you for that. Um, (laughs) So take me through um, a young woman playing and studying saxophone in college to your sort of turn into professional music making. Yeah. um, So Throughout high school, I was definitely making up my own stuff, you know, even even then. I didn't really know. I look back now and it's just like it's kind of funny to me because I didn't really know what I was doing. I was like, you know, like I'd make beats and stuff like, you know, at, you know, I'd use the software or whatever at school, um, you know, and then as I got a little bit older, like starting to get into college, I was like, oh, like, I'm going to get some, you know, by then, like, GarageBand was out and stuff. So I was messing around with that quite a bit. And then I kind of graduated from GarageBand to, um, at that time, there was, like, kind of a midpoint product between Logic. It was called Logic Express uh, from Apple. So then, like, then I kind of migrated to Logic Express, which had a lot of the Logic features, but, like, wasn't as intense. So I was just like making music and that, um, you know, for fun. And it wasn't really until later, I didn't realize that like, I really was making electronic music, but I I was just making stuff. Like I didn't know what category of the stuff that I was doing actually even fit into. So I was making stuff and people were like, oh, like, this is cool. Like you should play this out. And I'm like, what do you mean play it out? <laughs> like, cause by then, you know, then I realized I was like, oh, okay. Like I, maybe I should learn how to DJ. So I taught myself how to DJ from buying these DVDs, these DVDs online from um, DJ Shorty, who is a, she's a woman turntablist who's really popular. Uh, and her and her husband came out with this How to DJ 101 series. And so I literally bought these DVDs. I bought two Techniques turntables off of Craigslist in this very shitty small two channel Vestax mixer that was about to fall apart. And I bought two of the same record cause I was like, okay, like here's how I'm gonna learn how to mix. If it's the same record, I'll know when, you know, like I've matched the beats and stuff. And I literally had them set up in my little apartment <laughs> on my dresser. I remember in my bedroom and that's literally how I taught myself how to DJ. And so then I was like, okay, cool. I'll just like, you know, slide some of this stuff in to some of the sets that I was doing because I started getting booked a lot. It was, it was kind of crazy because I think, you know, here also there weren't really, there weren't really a ton of women DJs or any really, I think there might've been like one, maybe two at the time. Um, So like I started DJing out a lot and I practiced at home a lot. So I got pretty good, like pretty quick. And then I just started getting booked a lot. So then I would like drop in like some of my little tracks to hear how they would sound, you know, on the big system and like people liked them. <laughs> so um, after that, then I just started like kind of throwing like my own events and parties and stuff. And then that's kind of what happened. But yeah, there was, I would love to say there was some like strategic planning in there somewhere, but to be honest, it's like, I always loved music. I knew I was going to do something with it, but didn't know what. Like, I knew I was always going to be around it. I just didn't know in what capacity and what it would look like if someone told me, like, 20 years ago that I would be DJing places and, like, producing and DJing, producing for other people. I would have never, I would have never said that, that that yeah. would be how it would turn out. But 
life is interesting. <laughs> when you were playing out as a DJ and you started to incorporate your original music into your sets, how did you do that? Like, were you a, were you a turntable DJ at that point or was it all like, like how, just take me through yeah. that sort of functionally. Yep. I started out on turntables. Um, I personally believe every DJ should at least start out on them just because you just, it teaches you stuff that you won't learn really on CDJs or even on like a MIDI controller. Now I pretty much use everything. Like uh, it depends on like what the set is or whatever. It depends on like what, you know, instrument or apparatus or whatever I use. But I um, definitely started out on turntables. Like I can scratch and stuff like that, but I've never really been like what I would call like a battle DJ or anything. Like I can do it, but I don't love it. I'm more of like I'm definitely more of like a mixer and blender like I love like people barely being able to detect like you know differences between like a song like I really put a lot of thought into you know like melodies that would mix well together like trying to mix things like in key and stuff like that like I really I was I really focused on that kind of stuff a lot that's neat and so what was the trajectory um, yeah, so trajectory was, you know, I was throwing these after parties, you know, here, I would throw these after hours parties here in Grand Rapids. One of my friends owned um, a hookah lounge in this district that we call East Town, which is kind of like, it's like the cool area. <laughs> it's like the cool area of Grand Rapids, but there's like, you know, a bunch of bars and stuff. And so I started throwing these after hours, which kind of became legendary because <laughs> I'd like bring in people. Like once we started like making some money and stuff, like then I could bring people in. Um, and then from there, like, I got residencies, you know, locally. And then um, uh, one a guy here, uh, his name was Richie Lampani. At the time, he was working for one of our larger venues here called The Intersection. Um, and he's, he was managing a couple artists. And he's like, he's like, you know, like, you should let me manage you, like, and see, you know, what we can do. And I'm like, again, I'm young, stupid. I have no idea what that even means. So I'm like, okay, you know, sure, whatever. <laughs> So we did, and it actually turned out really good, um, you know, because like, he was kind of able to help me get on the right shows and everything. And then another management agency from out west um, actually approached him and was like, hey, like, we are hearing all this stuff, like, about this girl. Like, we would like to meet her, you know, possibly thinking about, you know, managing her. Because um, at the time, I had ended up on a couple of, like, smaller tours with some folks like Big Gigantic um, and uh, this band out of L.A., Virtual Boy, um, and a few other, like, festival, like, I would call, like, festival mainstay acts. So, like, they had, like, really good followings and all that. So I ended up on a couple tours with them. Um, and then there was a, there was a show here uh, Bass Nectar was the headliner and I ended up getting booked as the opener for the show and he liked my set so much he was like I had to talk to your manager he was like we're about to go on tour he was like it'd be awesome if you come on tour with us so that was really like my first like real tour where I was on the road for like weeks um, and I tell people this all the time I'm like if you ever want to know how the music industry works go on a tour because I learned more in that time on a tour probably than I ever learned in school, ever learned from what anyone told me because I watched stuff a lot too. So I was just kind of like watching all this activity, you know, on the tour bus and there's, 
you know, tour managers doing this and the assistants and stuff are doing that. We've got, you know, two buses, a couple semis of like gear and lights and all this stuff. So, you know, I'm meeting the crew, like understanding how that all works and like where the money is going. Cause now I'm, you know, like I'm getting paid by Live Nation now. So that's like, you know, a new relationship and seeing how that all worked and the difference between we play at like a Live Nation venue versus an AEG venue. And just that's like when you see the inner workings of like where the money is going and really how many people are involved. Like I learned so much on that tour um, that I like when I got home, I was kind of like, Okay, now I know what I need to do. <laughs> like, All right, before so. I ask you what it was that you said you know you need to do, I have to ask, like, what's the right way to ask this? What the heck were you doing paying attention? Um, and, I, <laughs> and what I mean by that is, um, do most artists in the electronic music genre pay attention to their own business? Or was it something about you where you, did you know you cared about the business? Like, how did you go from being a, like a, a locally renowned person to being on this tour and having sort of the sensibility to give a shit about that stuff? I don't know. I like, honestly, I'm not sure, but I think... So in addition to me being a music major, I was also a business major because my okay. parents were like, uh-uh, you need to do something else. <laughs> okay. So that's the so, part we um, skipped. <laughs> yes, I was also a business major, but I but I don't know that I would have thought at the time the, the practical application of that. I think it's more just like, I like when I like see like a goal and I'm really focused on it, I... It's, it's hard for me to see other stuff. Like I really get like the black, like I'm just like, I'm singularly focused on this goal. And I think because of that, I had also seen a lot of other people like really mess themselves up, <laughs> you know, in the scene, just by not like managing stuff and not managing money. I, I knew enough to be like, I need to know how this works. If I, if I want to actually do this, even if it's just a a little bit, I still need to know how this works. And I also knew even when I was in it and how much I loved it, I was like, I love this right now. I'm like, but I know I'm not going to love this forever. So I want to know, like, how does this whole thing work? You know, so I kind of know what I want to do next, you know, after that. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what other people do on, on tours, I guess. Like, I definitely had a good time. But I was first, I just, I think I was fascinated by it, too. Because I just, I had never, I had not been that close to it. Yeah. Like, I had been close to it locally, but it's different when it's like, you're with this, big star with these buses and like every night you go out every show is a sold out show so it's you get to see it at its most extreme level i think and it, it is like it's it's fascinating like just to watch the whole thing happen was it exciting to be the opening act in that context like was were, were those stages fun to play on was it was it oh yeah yeah super fun super fun to play on and honestly i I there's so much about being an opening act that I think is like it's so incredible um I tell people all the time like don't don't like you know shrug off those opportunities because it's harder honestly it's the it's the hardest slot of the night it's the hardest thing you can do you know like you learn so much by doing it like you're essentially setting the tone for what the evening is going to be like and frankly you're setting the tone for what tour you might get on next because nobody wants you know no headliner wants you know an opener who's like 
overplaying and like doesn't know like how to read the room and doesn't know how to keep the energy at like the right level so when they're ready to get on it's like people are ready but also you didn't do too much like it's a really fine balance um but I loved it I loved it and I learned so much just by doing that and I think like I got I went on four other tours with them like four or five other tours with them and I think a lot of it was just like they felt like I was a professional like because I would read the room so like I I think everyone needs to lean into the opening more like it helps you sharpen like all of your skills it helps to and it's, it's humbling too because sometimes you're just out there and no one's doing anything no one even cares that you're there but if you can capture those people's attention like you can feel like you've actually like done something by the way, I, I, I saw what you did there talking up the opening act and how uh, we're going to get to openers. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're gonna... That was that Honestly, was good. I that was clever. I actually wasn't even thinking of that. But <laughs> but in general, so because it's actually funny, like so I ran a night here that's actually still going. Um, it's now in the 11th year that this night has been running here in Grand Rapids. The night's called Basement. I started it uh, back in 2010. Uh, we always joke the tagline because it was a Monday night party and we'd say like ruining, you know, ruining everyone's Tuesday morning since 2010. Because <laughs> literally people were party so hard on this Monday night that Tuesday was such a struggle the next day. <laughs> but that night I ran the night, but I would always open because I felt like I wanted some other folks sometimes to, um, you know, get like more of the shine. Like I, what I really felt like was there wasn't a real place here in Grand Rapids, you know, a lot of my cutting my chops was like literally in my room. It's like I went from DJing in my room to like being on a stage. It would have been great if there was like a little ramp up, you know, somewhere in between then. So I was like, okay, like it would be so cool if there was, you know, a night where people could get on stage, kind of cut their chops, but it's not so intense that they can't, you know, there's that it's not like, un, you know, unforgiving. So I used to open for that night a lot because usually people want to play later and I'm like, whatever, you guys can play later. But that's where I used to trial all my tracks that I was about to play on tour. Like I, it was kind of almost like my testing grounds, like my, my pilot zone, like where I would check stuff out, see if people were into it. Um, but for that reason, I think, you know, I already had kind of a, like a love for that opening act slot. Cause I know what it means and I know how important it, it can be. Yeah. Were you, um, was your aspiration to have a long-term career as, as an artist, or were you thinking this has got an expiration date and I'm going to learn all I can and go be a business person. Like, were you even thinking beyond the next tour? Um, yes and no. Um, there's one critical piece that was left out. So while I was doing all this music stuff <laughs> in parallel, I was actually doing all of this tech stuff. So, uh, when I was on that first tour, I was on that tour during the day working as a developer on my laptop when we were just kind of traveling during the day. And then when we get to the venue, I'd put that laptop away and then we'd be doing sound check and whatever else. But like, I, I've been I've been a developer since right after school and that was kind of a funny journey too because I was told for the longest that I was not good at math and <laughs> but I learned on my so I had like my first job out of school that I had 
was working for the software development company. Um, it was right downtown Grand Rapids. And I was kind of like a projects manager kind of role, but I used to work with developers a lot. And I used to check their work a lot. So sometimes that would mean like you had to like test things or like kind of reverse engineer the code. So that's literally like kind of how I learned how to code was on a job and they would show me stuff. Um, and I just would learn how to do things, watch some videos, whatever. So that's kind of how that started. So it gave me, that gave me the stability, you know, that I needed of like a paycheck. And it also gave me like some flexibility to still do music the way that I wanted to do it. So these two things were like side by side, like pretty much the whole time. Um, and a lot of people don't know that, like, cause usually if you knew me for one thing, you probably just only knew me as like, you know, a developer and probably thought I did like business stuff. But like then all these other people knew me as Super Dre, <laughs> you know, as Super Dre, the, the, the music producer and DJ. And those two things really didn't collide, I would say probably until about like, maybe like five or so years ago, like five, six years ago. But till then, like, I really, I almost kind of accidentally kept those two things more separate. Um, now looking back, like, I should have just merged them a long time ago. But <laughs> I felt like, you know, I couldn't in some ways then. Well, tell me about the collision. What was the collision? What, 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 how did they come together? Yeah, so the collision of how they came together was... I think like once I had started touring and then you, then you're in it, you know, and there's, there's spreadsheets and, and all this stuff coming from, you know, from my management people like booking agents and stuff. And there's, you know, there's money moving around and you're trying to figure out where things are. There's social media um, KPIs you're trying to keep on top of. There's just a lot going on. Like, it's not like, I don't know how it was, you know, 50 years ago, but it's like you played music you went home. <laughs> like now it's like, you hope you yeah, you paid. play. Yeah. I know. <laughs> now it's like you play music, but you also have to be your own PR person, your own marketing person, your own, like, ev like your own everything. So really you become an entrepreneur. If you're smart about it, you, you become an entrepreneur real quick because you're trying to keep an eye on all the stuff that's happening. And like also just frankly, where your money is going. So I'm getting all these spreadsheets and I, I hate, I hate Excel, hate it, hate it so much, but I, I started to learn how to, you know, make some better charts and everything um, out of what I was working on. So after that, I was like, all right, it would be better if I could see this, you know, even better visually. And so tools like Tableau started to come out. And so then I was like pulling all this stuff into Tableau because I'm like, this will make it easier for me to read, easier to see, easier to know what's going on. Like, I don't know, like, where are most of my fans? Like, I don't want to have to look at stats on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and here and here and here and here and websites. Like, just there's so much stuff to like keep track of. And at the time, it's like, yes, I was making a fair amount of money as a musician, but like not enough to be paying someone full time, you know, to do a lot of that stuff. So using Tableau, some of my friends saw what I was using, like some of my other musician friends, and they're like, oh, shoot, they're like, can you make one of those like for me? And they're like, I would love to see all this stuff like in one place, like that would be great. And that's really like the moment of like, okay, this is more than what I originally thought as just a thing for me. Like, maybe other people would, you know, kind of want something out of this. Um, and by this time, you know, my 
my tech career parts had kind of grown from just like developer to now like more innovation work. So like now I'm in the startup scene, like now I'm in all of these, all these places, but I still hadn't, it was still separate for me, like in my mind, like it was still like, no, this is my music and this is my job kind of. And then finally it was like, oh, why am I like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> Cause I started to realize the, like some of the tech stuff that I was working on, I enjoyed it, but like, I didn't enjoy any of that as much as I enjoyed music. So I'm like, I just need to put these two things together. Like if I'm gonna do tech, like why would I not be, you know, applying my technology skills like in the music industry like that just makes sense and it was like one day I just had like a moment where I was like you know like remember who you are <laughs> like this is literally who you are so like why would you be doing something else like why would you be you know doing technology stuff in healthcare or this or that like this is literally who you are so that's like kind of how it happened and then I um you know, I, I, so I formed this company called Fortify with one of my friends. Um, and basically it was just that. It was like this data aggregation platform uh, for independent musicians that's pulling in data, you know, from different areas that a musician would need. And our whole goal was to apply, you know, these machine learning models to all this data for musicians to either like give them scores back or just suggestions on what to do. So stuff like, um, you know, like where would be good cities for you to tour in, you know, and like when would be a good time for you to do that? Like when is a good time for you to release an album, like stuff like that. Um, and that was really the, that was like the main focus that I was on from like the end of like 2018 and all of 2019. Um, and that turned into kind of its own thing. I ended up, um, I ended up winning this uh, competition here called 100 Ideas. Um, so I won some money for that. And like, I think that was the moment when I was like, oh, I think this is more than what I was even planning <laughs> that it might be. So, um, you know, I went from that and literally two days later, I ended up getting uh, accepted to the Motown music, uh, music Tech Accelerator that they do with Capital, with capital Music. Uh, I got accepted to that and like I was in that like in three days <laughs> like I'm boom like I'm, I'm in this program in Detroit uh, and that was intense like just even doing that you know for a few months um, spent some time in LA um, after that and everything and then came back here and we were I mean we were ready like we had a, a pretty solid plan had a little bit of funding behind us um, we had just done like a huge like kickoff event um, I myself had already gotten booked for a fair amount of music festivals that year. So I was, I had already like gotten some deals and, and all that with incorporating, you know, the Fortify stuff into the fact that I was also going to be there performing, like sponsoring pool parties and stuff like that. So everything was super planned out and super awesome. And then, you know, what happened in 2020. <laughs> the world caught a cold. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Everything came to a screeching halt. <laughs> so, yeah, after, you know, once COVID hit, then I was kind of like, okay, we just need to regroup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So let me slow down just a second and ask. Um, so in that original conception of Fortify, the idea was you were still going to keep a life as a performing artist. 
I knew I was going to have to slow down. Like, and I had already kind of started to taper because I like was really into the work that I was doing. So I knew I was going to have to slow down. I wasn't sure how much. I, it's been really interesting with me and DJing because I never really, um, I never really knew how long it would last. Like, you know, you just never know. Like I, like, especially like in Detroit, like the, the legends, you know, like the big three, like, you know, Juan Atkins, Kevin Saunderson, all those guys. Guys, like you know they're like they're in their 50s and they're killing it like you know like traveling everywhere traveling the world I was just like I don't know if I want to do that that long or if I want to do something else like I knew I, I knew I wanted to do more I just wasn't sure what that more was yeah that's the thing that comes through in your telling which is you worked your way up the music ladder got yourself to this place where you're performing on tours you're playing festivals and, you know, from one perspective, it looked like you could have kept doing that and maybe gotten bigger or maybe settled into like a really good like lifestyle career. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, but again, from that perspective, it looks a little bit like maybe it wasn't enough or you walked away or it wasn't satisfying all the different parts of your sort of personality. Like I, I, I'm yeah. playing armchair psychologist. Here, yeah. But like, yeah. What am I on? Yeah. For? It's, hmm, I think. I think it's partly because I, I, the longer you're in music, you see a lot, <laughs> you know, you, you see a lot of, um, especially like when you're on the artist side there, you just see a lot of exploitation. And I think I saw enough of it so that I didn't want it to happen more to musicians. Like I didn't, I knew what music did for me and how like it like it literally is like who I am and so I knew what that meant for me and I know that there's so many other like you think of like all these kids like it means that to them too and so like I, I just wanted it to be better like I, I wanted it to be a better experience um you know for people coming up kind of like behind me I think and I just saw a lot of opportunity to improve stuff frankly, because I'm like, okay, I've been in it, I've lived it, I've experienced it, I know it, you know, I love it. Sometimes you hate it, you know, you have these things that you love and that you hate about it. So I'm like, I feel like we can fix the stuff that I didn't like, you know, and I felt like I was maybe a good person to do that. <laughs> I guess like that's, I don't know, I, like now that I'm talking about it out loud, like it feels like that's probably more like what it was, but I definitely wanted to help. Like I had a real soft spot for, um, for independent musicians, you know, and, and just like, that's the, that's the lifeblood of really the, of the, of the industry, like the way that I kind of look at it and I get it, you know, I know everyone thinks that it's, you know, the, you know, the Beyonce's of the world, Ariana Grande, like these huge, you know, arena acts. And I'm just like, that's the point five percent you know of what's going on like that's those that's such a small percentage of what the music industry is like it's really these like you know 200 to 500 person venues all across the country sometimes in small towns sometimes in large cities like where these bands are touring around all the time in a van and like and people want to go out and see them because it makes them feel good. Like that's the, like, to me, that's like the real heartbeat of what I consider to be like the music industry in America. And I think often we get caught up in the stuff that's so big that we don't even realize like 
no, this is the stuff that keeps it going. Like, this is the stuff that gives people jobs, you know, in some of these like smaller areas. And then they can move on, you know, to some of those bigger opportunities. But it definitely is. Um, I don't know. It's interesting, like just the juxtaposition between like some of like the what people think the music industry is and what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could take an hour just to talk about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all right. So your business card does not say fortify on it. What is what are you doing now and how did that come to pass? Yes, yeah, so it definitely does not say fortify now. <laughs> um, it now says opener, OPNR. Um, and that really came about. So opener um, actually started in 20, really like kind of like around the time probably that I was ideating, um, but around like 2017, 2018. And um, they're mostly focused at the time, the focus was on like basically finding a way to pair up you know, independent musicians with show opportunities. So whether it's, you know, through a concert, uh, you know, promoter, organizer, or a venue, you know, if they have their own uh, talent booker there. So I actually remember when I was in the startup accelerator that I was in, when I was doing all like my, you know, research of just, you know, music, other music tech companies, like I absolutely remember Opener when they, when they launched and I, I had a, I created a profile because I was nosy and curious at the time is when I was living in Detroit. Um, and like, I just, I remember thinking like, wow, like this is really cool. Like, I like that this is, you know, like a thing for independent musicians, but really didn't think much of it because I'm, I'm focused on Fortify. Um, and so then after going through the pandemic, you know, everything, I, I ran into a friend of mine in a co-working spot that I'm often in here in Grand Rapids called Star Garden. And he was like, oh, you know, he's like, man, he's like, I haven't seen you in a year. You know, he's like, how have things been? And he's like, hey, he's like, you know, the he's like the founder of Opener, you know, made a post today on Facebook that, you know, he's possibly thinking about making some changes and maybe stepping away from it or selling it or something like that. He's like, I'm supposed to talk to him tonight. He's like, you want me to find out some more info, you know, for you or whatever. And I was like, yeah, you know, sure, whatever. I didn't, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. I didn't think that much of it. Um, he's like, okay, cool. He was like, well, I'll just text you, you know, tomorrow if I feel like I hear something that's neat. Um, and so he texted me the next day and he's like, you need to talk to this guy today. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay. Um, and ended up jumping on the phone uh, with Warf Wasley, who is the founder of, was of Opener. And we hit it off right away. And I sort of found out, you know, he's like, I want to, he's like, I, He's like, I can't be involved in the day to day. He's like, I'm really looking for somebody, you know, to come in and take this over, you know, and take it to the next level. Um, he's like, and I think that person might be you. you know? <laughs> so we spent a fair amount of time talking, you know, over the course of like few months, um, finally landed on a deal. And it ended up being that Opener actually acquired Fortify and it's IP. So the end game is to actually in these, you know, musician profiles that they create on opener is to bring in this ability for musicians to also get access to and understand the data. So it actually worked out great. <laughs> and then I was um, appointed a CEO of opener. And so that's kind of how that whole thing happened. It, it's it's kind of crazy because especially after the pandemic and everything, not after, because we're definitely still in it, but after yeah. 2020, the mess of the mess that was 2020, um, you know, I, we were still working, like still like working on stuff behind the scenes. I didn't really know how it was going to turn out. Really, my game was kind of like, 
well, if the music industry is on pause even longer, I'm like, really what I built was a data engine. It was an analytic engine. So I'm like, technically, I can apply this to any industry. I'm like, so I feel like maybe there's some other opportunities, like if I wanted it. Didn't really want to do that, though. Um, so we just kind of kept working behind the scenes. And I, my expectations were not high, really, for anything, you know, end of 2020 or this year. But um, turns out the universe had different plans. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, in our remaining time together, tell me a little bit about where Opener is now and what maybe the short and long-term aspiration is. Yeah. Absolutely. So where we are now, um, you know, we're in the process of raising money and all of that um, and really like starting to build out the team um, and just really firming up our growth strategy for the next year. So really like the name of the game now is, you know, making sure that we're getting more concert promoters and organizers on to onboarded onto the platform. So they're posting more show opportunities for these musicians that we already have um, on the platform as well. So right now we've got a little over, I think about a little over 6,200 musicians who are signed up and about three, a little over 300 concert promoters and venues that are signed up. So it's like really, it's, it's, a, it's a growth thing now. So it's, there's, a, there's a tie obviously to the amount of musicians that are you know, signed up for the platform as well as the promoters. So the more promoters that are on there posting show opportunities, the more those show opportunities are going to go to those musicians who are on the platform. And vice versa, the more musicians that are signed up, that gives, you know, more, um, <clears throat> excuse me, like more diversity in the acts that these concert promoters and venues can now use for bookings. So it's like it definitely is a it's a symbiotic relationship between the two. So we're just trying to grow both of those pretty aggressively. Gotcha. And uh, so raise money, put more boots on the ground, more people knocking yeah. on venue doors, more people combing socials to sign up artists and sort yeah. of scale that's definitely yeah scale is the name of the game now but also like a lot of partnerships too because again like i am a um i'm a musician so to me it's still about the culture so there's going to be a lot of um actual events too that we'll be involved in um some showcases things like that and we also want to amp up our uh festival partnerships and everything next year too to really start to get out there because i think once we can get you know kind of a critical mass of um, more promoters, concert promoters and venues added um, with more opportunities. That's, it's just going to be, you know, like kind of like a snowball effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, since we first spoke, I, I, I thought it's a, it's a really interesting business um, solving a very real, real problem on both sides of the marketplace. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to watching what you guys yeah. do over the next <laughs> months and years. And uh, thank you for making time to come tell us your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was actually fun. Like hearing myself talk about some of these questions, I'm like, wow, it's a kind of, I'm like going to go home and think about why I chose to do this over that. <laughs> I'll talk to my therapist. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to give you an existential crisis. <laughs> oh, no, no, not at all. It's just like, I don't know. No one's really asked, asked me like that before. So it was, yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, thank you for that, but get used to it because I'm sure the more uh, the more y'all get out there, the more people are going to want to talk to you. So, um, good luck. And yeah, um, thank you, thank you. Okay, okay. There comes a time. Thank you so so much, Dre Wallace and the team at Opener. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. 
And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.